Uh, This morning, our scripture reading will be from the Gospel of Matthew, where Matthew writes in chapter 21, verses 1 through 17, the historical account of Christ's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Beginning in verse 1, Now when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, and Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say, The Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put them on their on their cloaks, and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road, and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirring up, saying, Who is this? And the crowd said, This is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, Do you hear what they are saying? And Jesus said, Yes. Have you never read, Out of the mouths of infants and nursing babes you have prepared praise? And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany. And lodge there. Ephesians chapter 4 will uh, be looking again uh, as a second stab at the first two words in verse 26. One word in Greek. So, um, and we're going to, we're going to look at that today. Uh, we'll finish our discussion of righteous anger. There's still a few things about righteous anger that we'll touch on when we get to dealing with the rest of verse 26 and verse 27. Uh, that'll be, uh, Lord willing, January 8th. So, We'll come back to that and we'll hit uh, anger again. So here we've had two lessons on. We will have had two lessons on righteous anger. We'll see how we all do over the holidays, right? And then we'll come back and talk about sinful anger after that. So, and that's kind of the method to my madness, not really, but um, kind of funny the way that works out. But Ephesians chapter four, verse twenty-six: Is your anger righteous? And this is part two: Is your anger righteous? Does righteous anger give you a license to kill? Does it give you a license to behave badly and to speak hatefully? Some people try to justify ungodly behavior by appealing to Jesus' strong responses to sin at times. And sometimes, by listening to some people, you would think that Jesus was always walking around with a whip and and just striking everybody that was out of line. But the Gospels present a very different view of Jesus. There were times where he uh, had a very strong confrontational approach to sin, and we're going to talk about that today. 
But what we find, if you read through the four Gospels over and again, you, you realize that no one has ever been in more control, no one has ever been more patient or more gracious to sinners than Jesus. And that is the impression we get from the Gospels about our Lord. Last week I said that, and I gave you this definition of anger, it was our main point, and it's our main point again today, that anger is a powerful emotion, and we all agree on that. There's no debate on that. Everybody agrees that anger is a powerful emotion. It is prompted by perceived evil, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, that motivates us to respond to that evil. And we took that up last week, that part of the definition. Now, when you think about that definition, it is a definition of anger in general. Okay, It applies to both sinful anger and righteous anger. And so what we're doing, beginning last time and then through today, is we're laying out characteristics of righteous anger according to the Scriptures so that we can say, okay, this is what righteous anger is and how it differs from sinful anger. We want to be able to use the Scripture to measure our anger because we all do wrestle to different degrees and at different times with anger. And and so we need to be able to measure it by the Scriptures to see, is it really righteous? Is my anger righteous in this? So follow with me as I read uh, Ephesians chapter 4. I'm going to read these two verses, 26 and 27. Again, you remember that Paul is taking up these five different put-off, put-on pairs. This one, he flips the order of it. So this is the the second one after talking about truth and lying. He says, be angry. That's the put-on. And then here's the put-off. And yet, do not sin. In other words, put off sinful anger. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and do not give the devil an opportunity. So that's what we're working with here. He tells us to be angry. And as I said last time, anger is a duty for the Christian. And it makes some people uncomfortable because we know that anger can go south really fast, right? And it can be really bad sometimes. And so we might be a little uncomfortable, but... We shouldn't be uncomfortable if we can understand what is righteous anger and how do I know if I'm truly righteous uh, when I am angry. Well, we studied the first vital aspect or characteristic last time. Righteous anger motivates toward biblical solutions. And so remember we said, you know, think not retribution, but solution. So we, we want to change our thinking about anger to see that it motivates us toward biblical solutions. So, if your anger doesn't motivate you to a biblical solution, in other words, if you are right to be angry about something and you do nothing, that is wrong. If you do something, but you do it in the wrong way, that is wrong. Okay, so it needs to pursue a... It has to have the right goal, a biblical solution. We explored various godly ways to respond when we become righteously angry. Uh, So the second thing we want to look at now today is what is anger's goal? What is righteous anger's goal? And so here's our second characteristic of righteous anger. For the individual believer, and that's key, individual believer, the goal of righteous anger will be to correct and restore. Okay, so righteous anger for individuals like you and me, the goal 
of that will be to correct and restore. The restore part is something that, you know, you see it, and I've seen things like this in, in, um, out there in the world, discussions about, you know, when somebody does something wrong. And it's interesting that even unbelievers and someone who is an, you know, self-avowed atheist notice that, you know, whenever somebody has done something wrong, the world, you know, basically everybody lashes out at them and, and then you should just go away. There's no restoration. And they, they notice that. It's like, okay, hey, you've been reading your Bible. I mean, that's what the Bible is about is that, you know, yes, there is such a thing as sin. We do sin, but there should be correction and restoration. And that is what righteous anger ought to um, pursue. And so it can be helpful for us to look at anger as having one of two goals. So there is punitive anger. This is judicial. Uh, I'm, I'm going to use that term here a little bit more in a minute. It's judicial, and it, the goal of it is to punish. Okay, so punitive anger, punish. And so it's easy to remember, right? So that, and, and that can be a righteous anger, but it can also be unrighteous. Okay. The other kind of anger, or other goal, if you will, is corrective. This is constructive. The goal, again, is what I was saying before, to correct and restore. Okay, and, and so those are the two different, uh, you can look at anger those two ways based on the goal. One's to punish and one is to correct and restore. Now, let's talk for a minute about punitive anger. This is reserved for God. And the very few to whom he delegates authority, basically the government, okay? So think here in terms of if you see something that's very wrong, do you have the authority to kill that person for doing it? Now, I'm not talking about defending yourself. I'm just I'm saying they're doing something out there wrong. And, and I'm not, you know, talking about, you know, these exceptions where, okay, that's the only way to protect somebody who's trying to kill or kidnap this little kid. And the only way we got in a fight and I end up killing him. I'm talk, not talking about that. You see something out there that's wrong, and so you take it upon yourself to carry out justice against them and you kill them. That is not, you know, that's what I'm talking about here. Except for God, punitive anger should not be carried out by an individual. And you may think, okay, well, what about judges? Okay, so you have a judge sitting on the bench, you know, and they, you know, hand down this sentence. Well, the judge is not representing himself or herself. They're representing the state, the government, okay? And, and to keep them in check, there are panels of judges above them, all the way up to the Supreme Court. And so uh, there are checks and balances and all. So that's why we would not have, so if... If a judge's child was murdered and that trial came to his or her court, they would have to recuse themselves. Somebody would probably not even give it to them, right? You don't want them being the judge on that because they're going to have a, a trouble <laughs> representing the state or representing themselves, right? And, and so that's why they would not be the judge in that. So punitive anger is reserved for God or those that he's um, delegated it. Authority too. Anger is sinful when our goal is punitive and the punitive anger is not appropriate in this situation. Okay? That that's not what's called for. In other words, we're not allowed to kill abortion doctors. Okay? So when they're uh, performing abortions, they're committing murder, we agree on that, but it's not our place to kill that doctor. 
Okay, we don't have that authority. Okay, that authority is given to the state. Now, I know the state doesn't, you know, enforce that as, as, you know, God would require them to, but God will hold them accountable. So we can't go and kill the people who make those laws or don't enforce them. That is God's job, right? God has not delegated that authority to individuals. And possibly the most, the most frequent type of sinful anger, possibly the most frequent type of sinful anger is hurting someone because they hurt you. Think about it. Whenever you become angry at someone, most of the time that's probably what's going on there. You know, and you think about it. I mean, you know, when you're a little kid and you're sitting next to your brother or sister in the, the you know, in the car seat, you know, in this back seat and, you know, they just haul off and whack you. What do you do? Immediately you whack them back, right? I mean, that's just, it's just, you know, um, you hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. We think in terms of, well, they need to suffer like I have suffered. They need to hurt like I have hurt. Okay, that is punitive anger, and that is always sinful for us. We are not allowed to hurt someone back. Now, there may need to be something that, ha- that takes place. Okay, that's where we should go then to the corrective anger. But it's not for us to carry out punitive anger, to make them pay, if you will. Okay, that's punitive anger. We'll have some more to say about that in a little bit. But let's go to corrective anger now. This is where we must focus. This is where the duty for anger it, it applies to us primarily. Okay, because most of the time punitive anger is not for us as individuals. It is corrective. We need to seek a constructive solution to the problem. And remember, remember in our... Definition, righteous anger motivates us to seek biblical solutions. Okay, that is that first thing that I brought out. How do you know if it's righteous? Am I seeking a biblical solution? Okay. What we're talking about here are things like, you know, parents, when you discipline your children. Okay, that's that's your goal. Now, I know sometimes, you know, you might say, you might call it punishment, but it'd be good if we can try to not use that term so that we can get these things clearer in our heads. Now, I know kids, I mean, kids always think it's punishment, right? And Because uh, we never think it's, you know, fun at all. So, But we're talking about discipline, church discipline. Church discipline is primarily corrective. The, the goal behind church discipline is not to punish, but to correct. You're hoping to restore that person, to um, preserve the purity of the church, for example. Whenever you admonish, a brother or sister in Christ, when you rebuke, when you correct, when you exhort, that's what you're doing here. You see something. Okay, so they're doing something that's sinful, and you behold that, and and you're righteously angry about it, then you should speak up. And you may need to rebuke them. You may need to exhort them, to encourage it, whatever it might be that's appropriate, but it's corrective, you see. So that's what we're talking about here, that kind of thing. But you might wonder, okay, John, what if someone hurts me? You know, we've all been hurt by other people, right? What if they hurt you? What do you do with that? Well, MacArthur says, if a wrong has been done to us, if a wrong has been done to us, no matter how serious and harmful it may have been, no matter how hard they hit you, we are never qualified for, in other words, it's above our job grade, or have a right to render punishment for the offense ourselves. We are to leave that to the wrath of God. 
Okay? So, so what do you do? You don't, you don't lash back. You don't make them pay. You don't make them hurt because you hurt. Instead, you should respond with corrective anger. You should seek a biblical solution. And we want to think about these passages here just, just in just a second. I'll have them on the, on the screen. And I want you to watch there for two things. So let's go ahead and go to that next screen. Uh, there's, there are letters in these verses that are in black type, and then there are some in red type. Okay? The black type is what you are not to do, and the red type is what you are to do. Okay? So I'm going to read through those and listen. And I want you to, to watch for a key word in each one of these. Little word, but. Okay? First Peter two twenty one to twenty three, Jesus, while being reviled, did not revile in return, but kept entrusting himself to him, his father, who judges righteously. You see, that's the example, that's the pattern for us to follow. And the other verses are going to follow that pattern. So basically, you you and I need to get to where we realize somebody hurts me, and, and maybe there's some things that need to happen to where. Maybe it's church discipline or something like that. Or if kids, maybe it's, you know, your parents need to step in and discipline. Whatever may happen. But for me, I can't lash back out at you and hurt you back, okay? I need to entrust myself to God and He will take care of it, okay? Now, Romans 12. Never pay back evil for evil to anyone. Never take your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. Do not be overcome with evil. But... Overcome evil with good. And you think about Romans 12 passages where, you know, heat burning coals on their head. You know, you do, do good back to them. Okay? Is, is the idea. First Thessalonians 5.15. See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. First Peter 3.8 and 9. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, they call you a name, okay? But giving a blessing instead. See, that is how we are to respond whenever somebody hurts us, okay? Again, not retribution, but solution. Entrusting yourself to God and doing good. Those are the two, two basic things. You entrust yourself to God, He will take care of this, He will, He will make all things right, okay? And do good. Those are our responses, okay? Whenever somebody hurts us. Now, in the definition, I said that anger is prompted by perceived evil. So when we get angry, we've seen that something's wrong. That should not have happened. That shouldn't be. You shouldn't have done that. Okay, that, that's when we're angry. That's what's happened, right? There's a perceived evil, and that's a key word there, perceived, right? Because our perception of evil is perfect and flawless, right? Mm. No, I'm not. When you're when you're angry, you think it is. I said that last time, right? So when you when you are angry, oh, you are so right, right? And, and there, there's no argument. And, and that's, that's how we respond. Okay. But we need to remember that no, that's my perception of the situation. Okay. Again, I'm not God. We need to remind ourselves of that, right? So our third uh, characteristic of righteous anger is this. Righteous anger is against actual sin as defined by Scripture. Okay. 
So there's a couple of personal ouches in there for us, you know. So I don't get to define it. Scripture does. And as we'll see in a second, it's not about my rules. Anger should only be directed to what Scripture calls sin, breaking God's commands. Think here, 1 John 3, 4. Sin is what? Lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. It's breaking God's commands. Okay, It's disobeying Scripture. So this means that we must not become angry when our scruples are transgressed. In other words, well, you know, I really think people ought to do this. And I think that it's just wrong if they do that. Well, if the Scripture doesn't say, think about all the cultural things, okay? So, you know, the way we dress today compared to the way they dressed in the New Testament times or even before in Old Testament times. Are we going to make rules? And people do. We make rules. And we expect, you know, these are my scruples. Everybody ought to dress this way. You know, when they come to church, for example, or something. It's fine to have preferences, but don't get angry when people don't follow your scruples. Or your personal rules uh, when they're broken. Or your expectations. And this is a biggie. So, you may not know it, but you have expectations, okay? And you have expectations for everybody around you, right? And, And so, some of those, I mean, they're not bad, I personally think we ought to get rid of expectations, but they might be good desires. Okay, so you have a desire for a godly spouse. You have a desire for a godly child. You have a desire for godly parents, you know, or godly brothers and sisters in Christ. And you have, you have, you know, desires for your church. What about when those are expectations are not met? Okay, is it your place to get you know, punitively angry at your spouse because they're not as godly as they ought to be? No. You should do something about it. You know, you should, okay, hey, let's let's work on this or something and uh, get counseling, whatever it takes. But if it's your expectation that hasn't been met, you should not be angry about that. And this is where things start crumbling and falling apart in our lives. And we, and, and we fall into... Sinful anger rather than righteous anger. It may have started, okay, so if, if somebody in your life is, is not godly, this or that, should you be angry about that? Probably. But that takes you to the, the, you need to think, okay, am I angry because it was my expectation or am I angry because they're disobeying Scripture? Okay? And, and that's what we're trying to get to, Okay? Righteous anger is triggered when God's word is disobeyed. The psalmist says in Psalm 119.53, Burning indignation, in other words, anger, has seized me because of the wicked who forsake your law. Again, it takes us back. It's the scriptures that they have transgressed, right? And so, uh, this this applies in a lot of different things, but especially when you're talking about sin and anger and all. Use biblical terms. Okay? Make yourself use biblical terms. And uh, parents, th- this is helpful for you to try to tie all of your rules of the house to Scripture. Okay, Because th- then it's not just you know, debate over, well, I said so, but God said so. Okay, And, and you can do that. It, it, it takes work. And I know you got enough to do, right? But no, it's helpful. Use biblical terms. Okay, so when you're talking about anger and all, use biblical terms. So you don't say, well, I'm angry with you because you were mean to me. 
Okay, so, okay, well, let's go look at the Scripture. How can I get help with that? And you go and you get your concordance out and you look and nowhere is the word mean used that way in Scripture. Okay, so I guess the Bible doesn't say anything about, you know, being mean to each other. Well, in one sense, it doesn't. You should use the term, you were unkind to me. Oh, now, kindness. Well, the Bible has a lot to say about that. And what it does is when you use biblical terminology, it it helps lead you to passages that can be helpful. Because what is our goal again of corrective anger? To correct and restore. Okay, so if you want them to correct it, they need to go to the Scriptures to say, okay, how do I correct my unkindness? And then restoring means what? I need to learn how to be kind. Okay, again, put off, put on, right? And so... Use biblical language uh, because it, it changes everything and it actually gives you the ability to find Scripture to help. And, and then it's not just a matter of semantics. You know, it's like, well, that, that's your opinion. Okay. We'll go and see what, what does the Bible call, what does it mean by kindness? What does that look like? And how should we live in light of that? Okay, so number four, uh, characteristic about righteous anger. Righteous anger expressed in a settled conviction imitates God. And there's kind of you know, two in that, so I'm cheating a little bit. So, uh, Righteous anger is expressed in a settled conviction, okay? And that imitates God. Some Christians and non-Christians even, uh, especially, don't think that anger is in any way good. There's no such thing as righteous anger, any kind of good anger. Um, they have to wrestle with tons and tons and tons of scriptures that talk about that God is angry, He becomes angry, and He carries out His anger. Okay? Uh, think wrath. But anger is not intrinsically evil. In other words, in and of itself, anger is not evil. Okay? It's how you do it and why you do it. God has anger. He gets angry. Just uh, not too many verses uh, ahead of us here in Ephesians 5 or 6, he talks there about the wrath of God that comes upon the sons of disobedience. That wrath, that's an anger term. Okay, so even in this larger context, he's talking about God gets angry. Think about Psalm 2, verses 4 and 5. God will speak to the rebellious nations in His anger, and He will terrify them in His fury. God's anger is always righteous. He does get angry, and His anger is always righteous. So, righteous anger is not this fly-off-the-handle rage. Okay, and that's what I mean by this settled conviction. Okay, it's a settled conviction. It's not just something that, you know, where you're capricious, you just you never... One moment you're happy, the next moment you're, you know, you know beating people. You know, it's not that. Uh, MacArthur says... This righteous anger is a deep-seated, determined, and settled conviction. It is the anger that abhors injustice, immorality, and ungodliness of every sort. Okay? So, it's not just something where you just fly off the handle. It's like you see evil in the world. You see evil in a person's life, and there's a, a settled conviction against that. So, where you can see we're going with this is we're going to talk about self-control in a minute. And there has to be that self-control if it's to be righteous, you see. So it's not that, you know, it could be that your anger is increasing, but not ever to the point of exploding. 
but it increases to the point of I need to do something about this. You know, you're patient with somebody. You know, your your child they they're they're kind of pushing the envelope a little bit, and you're patient, you're patient. But there comes a point where you say, okay, draw a line here. That's as far as you're going. Okay, now we have to have discipline. Okay, and and so it's not the fly off the handle. It, and so righteous anger imitates God. That's why we are called to be angry. Now. Many of the examples in Scripture of God becoming angry are judicial. They're judicial. And so they're not for us to imitate, or at least not directly. We're going to look at that. Uh, for example, David said in Psalm 711 that God is a righteous judge. There's the judicial element. And a God who has indignation every day. Okay, So you know, here, God has anger every day. Why? Because people are sinning every day. Okay, and and so we look at it when his anger in those times when he's carrying it out as a judge, they're not for us to imitate, at least directly. Okay, let's talk about what that means. So last week I brought out two passages, Mark three and Mark ten, where those are two of the three passages in the Gospels that actually say Jesus became angry. Okay, and that use the word anger. Okay, and and so this is the third of those. When we talk about, and there, it's in four different passages. Each of the Gospels has an account of it. When Jesus cleansed the temple, and, and Kevin read one of those, Matthew 21, for us. So can Jesus' cleansing of the temple be used to justify a Christian setting aside godly character traits when they're angry? You know, and the answer to that is no. Now, although people will appeal to these. They will behave in a sinful, sinfully angry way, and they'll say, well, but think about what Jesus did when he cleansed the temple. So that justifies my, what, what we would term, uh, sinful anger. Okay, so why does, why does Jesus' cleansing of the temple not give us justification to set aside godly character traits and just let our anger fly? First, it was a judicial act. Um, Robert Jones, you remember the book I, I showed you last time, Uprooting Anger. He explained that our Lord's controlled anger, there's self-control again, was not weak. Okay, and that's important to see. It was not weak. It was confrontational. Fortified with power, his anger showed itself in bold judicial acts. Christ focused his energy to bring judgment against evil. It was a judicial act. Okay, and Jesus could do that because he, number one, is God, and number two, he's Messiah, and Messiah is appointed to judge. So God is our judge, he is the judge, and Messiah is appointed to judge. And there's a lot of verses, we won't go into those, uh, that talk about, you know, like Psalm 2, for example, uh, where Jesus, uh, Revelation 6, others, where he, Jesus himself, is the judge. But the passage about the cleansing of the temple in John 2 it uses in verse 17 this word zeal. Remember that? Where they said, and the apostles remembered that, zeal for your house will consume me. Okay, and that's why Jesus cleansed the temple. Okay, and that they're explained, John's explaining that. Okay, that word zeal is an anger word. Okay, and you sometimes just think it means zealous, but it's actually um, an anger word. It's used in Hebrews 10.27 to refer to God's anger in judgment. So what John is saying there, when Jesus said, 
zeal or indignation, anger over your house, the way it's being treated, will consume me. It was a judicial act. So his anger then was judicial, so we can't directly imitate it. What that means is, I mean directly, where we can't go into other churches that are not teaching the truth and, you know, turn, flip everything over and get a whip and chase people out. We can't go to, you know, a business that's supporting, you know, things that are bad and evil or the government. They're not passing the right laws or enforcing the laws. We're, we can't go in there and just turn all their tables over and bash their computers and run everybody. There's not a direct connection there, okay, because it was a judicial act. But there are parts of it that we can imitate. Um, sometimes, as Jones points out, his, Jesus' anger was not weak. It was confrontational. Sometimes ours needs to be that way. And whether we're talking about raising children or dealing with uh, sin out there, in here, where sometimes it has to be confrontational. When somebody is in sin and they're not repenting, we have to be confrontational. And so, as unpleasant as, say, church discipline is, it's something that we sometimes have to do. It has to be confrontational. Somebody is living in sin, we we need to, you know, and it's an unrepented sin, and uh, the nature of it is we we got to... Get in their face and say, you, you may not do that anymore. Okay? That has to stop. And then, you know, if we have to, we, we take it on through the other steps. But sometimes it has to be confrontational. So some of those things we can do, but we, we can't, like I said, you know, take it upon ourselves to be the judge and condemn, you know, organizations, people, that sort of thing. That's God's job. But we're, we're trying to answer the question, does his cleansing of the temple give us the justification to set aside godly character traits? Well, the second, first we said no because it's judicial. Second, did Jesus, and I answer a question with a question here, did Jesus set aside godly traits when he cleansed the temple? And when you talk to some people, you get the impression that they think he did. That, you know, it's almost like, well, Jesus just lost it. You know, he walked into the temple and all this craziness was going on and it was bad, it was sinful, and he just lost it. That is not at all what we find. You know, it's like, okay, I don't have to, whatever godly character traits, don't, right now those don't apply. Okay, that's never true. That is never true that those don't apply to Jesus or us. To answer that, Number five, our fifth character trait of righteous anger. And this is a quote from Robert Jones. I couldn't say it better than him, so I just went and quoted him. Righteous anger is accompanied by other godly qualities and expresses itself in godly ways. So it's accompanied by other godly qualities and it expresses itself in godly ways. So how do you know that your anger is indeed righteous? One of the ways is that it will be accompanied by... Uh, other godly character traits. Now, this has been one of the things that has been the most helpful for me in dealing with my own anger, is is to say, okay, when I'm angry, you know, am I self-controlled and so forth? Okay, we're going to talk about that. Let me give you a couple examples. Love. So, love should be there, okay? 
Are you seeking the person's good? Because that's what agape is. Is seeking their good. Are you seeking their good? And a lot of times it's not. No, I just want to hurt them. You know. And well, now remember punitive anger, and that's not for me. I need to seek their good. Okay. So it might be unpleasant for them, like discipline situation, but you're seeking their good. Um, and and if you say, yeah, I think so. Well, go read First Corinthians thirteen four through eight. Remember, love is and all those things it says that are hard to do and be, right? But go and, and is that my love? Does that describe my love when I am angry? Okay. Um, so you see how love now explodes into okay. Now there's a lot that's got to happen here. Yes. Uh, we already saw in Ephesians four fifteen, speaking the truth in what. Love, or better, translating it from Greek, truthing in love. In other words, it's the whole response, not just my words, but the, all of my response is to be in love. So especially when, when it is appropriate for us to speak up, to speak out about injustices, things that are wrong, whatever it might be, that we do it in love, that agape is what characterizes our response. Another one, self-control. And this might be our weakest area when we're angry. I mean, don't you think, you know, when you're angry, that one goes out the window first, usually. Okay? is self-control. Because it's hard. I mean, would we say anger is a powerful what? Emotion. Okay? So, when that starts welling up within us, as it's supposed to, God created us that way. It's easy for us to let self-control slip and go. Okay? But remember this. You know, okay. Whenever whenever we lose it, you know, oh, I was talking to so-and-so and, and they were really, you know, giving me what for, and, and I find I just lost it, right? Okay, you've never, never been there, right? Well, what do we think in that moment? Oh, well, if, if I lose it, they'll finally get the point. Right? They'll know what I'm talking about now. And, and that, that's what we think. We think that if our response is over the top, just, you know, blast, that it will, it will make, uh, it'll accomplish what we want to accomplish. But, the Bible says something very different. Maintaining control is far more powerful than losing your temper. Solomon explained in Proverbs 16.32, He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty. So you can think about, you know, the toughest person out there in, in the, you know, maybe the tough guys in the special uh, army and, and other armed services regiments, you know, where they're the best of the best. And Solomon said... If you're slow to anger, you're actually better than that. In other words, you have more ability to control the situation, if you will. I don't mean that. To be in control and to accomplish what needs to accomplish the biblical solution. You're better than if you brought in the army rangers or something, right? And he goes on, And he who rules his spirit is better than he who captures a city. So you think about these guys that can go armies and they can capture a city. That's impressive. Solomon says, but somebody who can rule his spirit is better than that. 
here in, in situations of anger. Because he said, he who is slow to anger. Okay? So, you know, and think that through. Try to take it sometime this week and just picture that. So, if somebody's sinning against me, and I remain, you know, we say calm, cool, and collected, right? And, you know, I'm always impressed, you know, like, you know, police officers, uh, you know, people in the military and stuff, you know, I don't know if I can do it the way they do, but you, know, you, you see that when, whenever somebody is kind of confronting them, you know, a lot of times, you know, they, they stand like that, and, they, and they're just, it's a position of strength. I'm in control here, I'm in, I'm in control of me, and you're not going to throw me off, right? And so I can deal with this situation because I'm maintaining control of me, right? That's a position of strength. And so parents even, okay? You might think that, you know, cussing and throwing things and whatever at your child is going to accomplish a lot, but really being, you know, in control. I mean, think about it. So your child is, they're losing it, right? And you're like, okay, let me know when you're done. Okay, so here's here's what we're going to do. I mean, the child is going to, you know, they're going to be like, oh boy. You know, because what is it? They sometimes will take pleasure in throwing you off. Right? Pushing your buttons. I mean, you've known, maybe you were one of these kids. It's like, I know I'm going to, you know, they're going to beat me, but I made mom lose it. Okay, because they like throwing you off where you're not controlled. But you come from a perspective of control and you control you. Now you can do what righteous anger is meant to do. You can say, okay, you done with your tantrum? Okay, this is what we're going to do. We're going to retry that. You're going to do it right this time. And we'll keep doing it until you get it right. You're coming from a position of strength. And apply that to all of your relationships when there's, there's a problem of sin. Maintain control of you, right? And that gives you the strength to do what God calls you to do. So, every godly character trait will be active, must be active in righteous anger. Some of some of the traits will be more either in the forefront or more prominent, however you want to think about that, okay? But none of them will be absent, okay? Patience is a great example. God's patience comes to an end at a certain point, you know, when there's no repentance. You can think here, Isaiah 42, 14 and following, it's a good example. Or think about... <clears throat> Mom tells her child to uh, clean, you know, clean your room before supper. Okay, well, and if you're like most of us, right? You you dilly dally and you dilly dally and you dilly dally, and mom is being patient. Remember, from position of strength, she's in, has control, and and she remains patient. Okay, so she's not yelling at you all through the day because you're not doing it. But then comes. Supper. Now patience has, has run its course, it's done its job, and now it's time for something else, right? 
now consequences, right? Correction, discipline. And so you think about how uh, patience is at the forefront for mom there. For, for God, whenever He is patient with us, we sin and we sin and we sin. And then Hebrews 12 kicks in, the Father disciplines us, right? But think about this too. While mom is disciplining the child, however she does that, patience isn't gone. It hasn't disappeared. She hasn't said, okay, patience is done, so I don't need patience now. No, because she is still patient because she, it, that might have her limit the severity of the discipline because she thinks, okay, we're just starting with this particular issue and trying to help them learn this particular uh, behavior. And so I won't be as severe as I will in two weeks when they're not still not getting it, right? So she's patient because she said, okay, I need to leave time for growth here. So we're going to have some discipline, but it's going to be lighter. If it keeps up, I'll get a little bit more, have more severity to it. And I don't ever mean like losing its severity, but you know what I'm talking about. And so uh, it, whether it's, um, well, just thinking about the consequences. See how patience is still there. That's my point. It's not completely gone. So make sure your anger responses are consistent with godly traits. Make sure your anger response does not contradict godly character. So a good way to think about that is in that moment where it's now time for anger to take over, to do its job, can you rightly be called impatient, not patient? If so, then then you need to work on that. Are you truly, now I know, when, when the person's receiving that, they, they'll, oh yeah, you were impatient, you were unloving, you were unkind, and okay. But I'm saying rightly. Can you rightly be described as that? All, your, your response should be consistent with all of the godly traits. So, sometimes um, love, and here think corrective love, you remember we used to use the term tough love. Um, so love, self-control, they're prominent when, when there, whenever a confrontational approach is called for. So let's go to the next slide. And I've got some illustrations here. So let's talk through for just a minute the fruit of the Spirit and anger. So we get fruit, a lot of times fruit of the Spirit uh, is, you know, like a, a cluster of grapes because it's really one fruit uh, with nine qualities to it, if you will. Um, and then I put anger in there too. It's not really a part of the fruit of the Spirit, but it is a duty. We've said it's a duty, okay? So you've got anger, the little red uh, great there. Okay, so now let's go to the next slide. And what's happening here is that someone is sinning, and, and you're seeing that, uh, maybe even on the receiving end, and you're being patient. Or here, again, think about the, the mom again. So, and sorry kids, you know, you disagree illustration sometimes. So, um, <clears throat> Do you notice here that some of the grapes are more prominent than others? So, in that moment, patience is up front, if you will, or there at the bottom. It's the closest to the child, if you will. But it's prominent, and then you have self-control is prominent, peace is prominent, and see what I have in the middle? Can't read it. Um, gentle, thank you. So that's mom. That Those are prominent, but the other aspects are there. Okay, and you see anger is kind of tucked back a little bit, right? And it's smaller. It's not as prominent. 
Okay, mom is angry because the child is they're dilly dallying and not cleaning their room like she told them to. But it's not time for her to discipline because she gave them a you know by supper. Okay, so anger is kind of it's there, but it's not prominent. Now let's go to the next slide, and now uh, now is the time for anger to. Seek a biblical solution, okay? So guess what moves to the forefront and what's prominent? Anger, okay? Righteous anger, godly anger, okay? And then you still have self-control, okay? That needs to be one of the biggies, right? Whenever you're angry, in whatever situation that is, when you're angry, self-control needs to be one of the biggies. Uh, there needs to be love. And here, again, think. Love is... you. you care about them. You care about society. You care about, you know, our governing authorities. You care about those things, right? You care about the church at large. That's biblical love, okay? Agape. And and even, I think, I have good. Is that right kind of in the middle? Is that the one? Yeah. So, think about, you know, I, I seek their good. So, when I, when I do whatever the anger response calls for me to do there in this situation, I'm seeking their good. Okay, now let's quickly walk through um, when Jesus cleansed the temple. Did he set aside the fruit of the spirit? No. Okay, so here real quickly. Okay, some of those were in the foreground or more prominent; others were less prominent, but they were still there. Love. Jesus cleansed the temple out of love for his Father and love for others, so that they would have a place for worship. Faithfulness. He was zealous. Remember for God's house. Self-control. He was in complete control. Uh, he, it's never right to say that he lost it. He didn't. Goodness. He sought the good of others. Gentleness. He limited his wrath. Because as the judge, as God, he could have t- taken all those people who were, were making the temple into a robber's den. He, he could have then cast them all into hell. He, he's God. He could have done that. But he restrained that. He was in his gentleness there. Joy. He's looking forward to the, the good that would come from it. Hear that principle in, in Hebrews 12 too, for the joy that was set before him is, is how he operated. Peace. He sought to replace the, the, the commotion with worshipful peace, kindness. He gave them less than they deserved. You see, it overlaps with good, right? He gave them much less than they deserved. Patience. Jesus had been patient, but then that moved to the background. He's still patient. Because he, he let them live. But you see, so does that help to, to understand that they were all there, all the through the Spirit, and all the other godly characteristics that we could add to that were there. So, and this is an important point. So I said that this is the third, his cleansing the temple is the third anger passage uh, we find in the Scriptures. And in all three of them, as I said last time, his compassion was there. It was present. And I don't know if you noticed in verse 14 when Kevin read that. This is all part of the same episode. Okay? It's not story number two or whatever. This is the same episode. It says, and. He cleansed the temple. And immediately after cleansing the temple, the blind and the lame came to Jesus and he healed them. That's significant. Because, you know, if Jesus lost it, People who were needy and poor and crippled, they would not have come to him. They would not have felt come. Let's give him a little time to cool off first, right? 
That's not what happened. He cleansed the temple. He may have still had that little whip in his hand. And people were drawn to him for, for compassion. And they felt comfortable to come to him seeking compassion. In fact, the character of his righteous anger drew them to him. You see that? The character of his righteous anger drew them to him. So let me ask you, when you get angry, are people drawn to you? Ouch, I know. I didn't like writing that one. I didn't like putting it out there so you can hold me accountable. When you're angry, are people drawn to you? Does your anger create opportunities for compassion and for serving others? That's what Jesus' anger did. In every one of those situations, compassion. Now, there was was a strong confrontational approach in all three of them. But there was also compassion. So, does it sound far-fetched for me to say that anger should draw people for needing compassion? Does that sound far-fetched? Well, aside from those three passages, there's one more. Those passages that talk about the cross. Because it is there on the cross where God poured out the fullness of His wrath, His fierce wrath for sin. He poured it out on Jesus. And when, when His Son was lifted up, God poured out His wrath on Him for our sins. But the cross is also the place where sinners are drawn to. What did Jesus say in John twelve thirty two? If I be lifted up from the earth, he's talking about the cross, I will do what? I will draw all men to myself. It's not far fetched. Because the place where God's the fullness of God's wrath was poured out is the place where Jesus draws people to himself. The cross. And we need to Wrap, wrap our minds, <clears throat> excuse me, around that. Wrap our minds around that concept. Because our anger should be like God's, should be like Jesus' anger. It should have a character that draws people. 